and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deepest values of those who shape our public conversations. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public platform. Journalists, politicians, archbishops, artists. And I ask them to reflect on what is sacred to them, the ideas that have formed them, and how we can get better at engaging across our very many divides. I deliberately speak to as wide a range of people as possible who have different beliefs, political persuasions and backgrounds, although clearly we can always do better with that breadth. And we do that because my hunch is everyone is more interesting when you get beneath the surface. And that the more we really understand where people are coming from and why, rather than just make assumptions, the better for us all. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do share, rate and review us. I do get a little thrill when I see a new review come in. So a huge thank you to those who've already done so. And also, please feel free to suggest guests. If you know someone or see someone with a public voice who you think I could have a really meaty conversation with, then please drop us a line. The easiest way is probably Twitter, which is at sacred underscore podcast. In this episode, I speak to Miriam Cates. Miriam has been Conservative MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge since 2019. She was born and brought up in Sheffield, studied genetics at Cambridge and taught science before having children. We spoke about her Christian faith, becoming a Conservative as an adult, almost by accident, her unusual path to becoming elected as an MP, and why she thinks we should talk more about family and parenthood. be really honest, I was slightly dreading this conversation because... MPs are usually, understandably, pretty guarded and can have the tiniest tendency to trot out rehearsed lines in interviews. And also, because I think I'm probably a bit too pastoral, I end up feeling really warm towards almost everyone I interview, which I think is part of the magic of listening and of generosity of attention but that means then I feel a duty of care and know that for MPs in particular if they let their guard down it can be used against them. However this conversation with Miriam was refreshingly straightforward and I think we had a really good chat. I hope you enjoy listening. Miriam I'm gonna go right in the deep end by asking you about what you hold sacred which is not your classic icebreaker, opener, uh, dinner party conversation, but you have had a bit of time to think about it. What came up for you, maybe in relationship to this concept of the sacred, and then any particular values that you think, yeah, this is this feels like it's deep in me, this feels like it's been formed, um, and I've been trying to live by it? Yes, very deep question. I suppose I can sum it all up in the belief that God is good. God is good, and I can trust him. And I think everything else comes from him. So the verse that I keep coming back to in the Bible is, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. And I think it's so tempting in life, in politics, in work, to worry about the things that we need, the things that we want, the things that we think um, we can't live without. But actually to keep coming back to the idea that if I at least try to be obedient to God, try to follow his ways, then actually I don't need to worry about those things and I don't need to grab them for myself. And um, how much was that faith, that kind of Christian grounding part of your childhood? Was it in the air as you were growing up? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I come from a multi-generation of Christians and there's lots of vicars in my family. Um, And my parents are very strong, faithful Christians. And I suppose 
I didn't realise at the time, everybody thinks their childhood is normal, don't they? But I didn't realise at the time how much um, that faith was part of everything we, we lived and breathed. I mean, we went to church, you know, lots of Christian families do. But I think very much an emphasis in our family on how important character is um, and that actually the principal work in our lives is to allow God to form our character. And you know, I was high achieving at school and I was musical and all those things. But actually looking back, what my parents encouraged in us was, was character. Um, and it wasn't that they didn't celebrate those things, but they certainly didn't, um, didn't pressurise us into feeling that we had to go, you know, do those things and achieve. It was much more about character formation. And actually looking back, that's very in contrast to how, how the world is, but it was absolutely foundational to, to what I believe. How did that, give me concrete examples. This is partly as a parent thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do I do this? But, um, and you're raising children as well. How, how did they seek to build character in you? What did that look like every, in everyday terms? So for example, we, we never went to bed angry with each other or with an open argument. So I remember, um, I've got two younger brothers and I remember shouting across the landings before you know, our separate bedroom before we went to sleep. Oh, I'm sorry for such and such. I forgive you. And at the time, it felt a little bit formulaic. But actually, that principle that the relationships were more important than anything else, more important than getting your own way, all those things that um, at the end of the day, the relationships were more important. Um, I suppose that was a that was a real example. And, you know, it's hard. I've got three kids. They argue all the time. Lots of, you know, that's what children do. And it's a fine balance, isn't it, between teaching them to genuinely want to say sorry and make up but also making it part of family life that we do you know we do we don't have any we keep short accounts with each other and we don't have any kind of uh, anything going on in the background we try and we try and make up so that you know that's one example that relationships are more important than, than anything else and tell me a bit more about the um that childhood setting paint me a picture of kind of young Miriam what's her <laughs> ecosystem what's her environment you know were political ideas around philosophical was it urban was it rural what was it like so a very typical middle-class upbringing in, in Sheffield, uh, in the north of England. My dad's a, a retired GP. Um, so, you know, in some ways, very very normal. Um, I went to the local schools, two younger brothers. I was very, very interested in politics from about the age of 11. And I don't really know why, because none of my family are particularly political. I mean, they're interested in current affairs and things like that, but not party political at all. Um, and I got hold of uh, an old long wave radio at the age of 11. I'm not sure how. And the only thing it would tune to was Radio 4. And so I started listening to the Today programme. And West, I mean, it sounds so geeky, you know. Lovely 11 year old nerd. Yeah, I didn't have that. There were no smartphones then. You know, I had nothing else. Um, and I just became fascinated by, I think, the process of how ideas become policy, how they're debated, how people argue their position. I used to listen to any questions a lot. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't, I wouldn't have come down on, on either side of, you know, the party political spectrum, but I was just fascinated by the whole idea of politics and the power to, to, to bring change. Um, so, you know, that was part of my life. I was also you know, very interested. I loved schools, very interested in history, very interested in music, very interested in science. I, you know, I was very lucky that school very much suited me. And so, uh, yeah, I just had a fairly normal um, upbringing in that sense, but with some quite geeky interests I suppose (laughs) and when did a more conservative political philosophy begin to crystallize for you I have to say I'm still catching up on the whole philosophical front because I don't have any background in 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 philosophy or you know as I said I studied science at university so 
Uh, although I, you know, I read fairly widely, I don't have the vocabulary and the history that a lot of my, my colleagues do in discussing those things. But actually, I was a floating voter. And I, became, I, I joined the Conservative Party because a family friend asked me to stand in an unwinnable uh, council seat. And my first thought was, who would be a Tory in Sheffield? You know, I grew up in the 80s with Thatcher was hated and uh, steel industry mining nearby. I mean, it's not, it was not, it's changing now, and not the done thing to be a Tory in Sheffield. But I just very much felt that this was the obedient thing to do. And I asked some wise people in our church to pray about it, and it wouldn't go away. And um, I had the feeling that some unexpected fruit would come from walking this path. And then someone also pointed out that if I did want to be someone of influence, then I needed to get over the fear of man. And there isn't a better way of doing that than knocking on the doors in Sheffield and asking people to vote Conservative. So I, I did it. I campaigned. I didn't win. I think I came fourth, but I tripled the vote. So it's uh, some, some improvement. But I really enjoyed it. And I just felt if I do this again, uh, I wanted to be winnable. But I thought I'd better look into a bit more what Conservative Party stands for. And I think, um, you know, from a faith point of view, Jesus was not party political. And there are great Christians in all political parties, and that's the way it should be. But I think two things really struck me. First was a quote from David Cameron, which I read, which is saying that if generally, if you give people control over their money, their lives, their family, they generally make good decisions. And I thought, yeah, that, that chimes with me. That's not always true. Of course, it isn't. There's so much brokenness. But actually, generally, we're designed to have autonomy over our lives. That's a conservative principle. And then the other thing is the debate around the kind of identity politics debate, and I'm really interested in that debate. I think Christians have got a lot to say in it. And I don't think on the left at the moment there is any space. Um, whereas there is, there is a live and um, healthy debate in Conservative Party and in Conservative thinking um, where you're not shouted down and where you can have a genuine discussion. I don't think, unfortunately, that's possible on the left. So I think those two things um, for me, um, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a ideological conservative when it comes to tax and economics. I'm pragmatic. I think taxes should be as high as they should be. We should spend as much as we should spend. Um, but, um, but definitely on the spectrum, left to right, I'm centre right. I want to come back to that kind of political philosophy and, and, your, and your political career. But first, let's just trace the science thing. What led you into science and then science teaching? What do you love about it? What were you trying to do? Well, I was thinking about this in preparation. And why do I... I couldn't decide between doing something like history or politics and doing science. Um, and I think what ties them together for me is that I really want to understand the world. And I think you can't understand the world without understanding what's gone before. History is so important for that. Um, and you can't understand the world without science. And I think those were the things that tied those things together. Um, and I, you know, and I have to say it was laziness that put me down the science route because I'm an extreme extrovert. And the idea of sitting in a room reading books and having to motivate myself to write essays just didn't appeal. Whereas, you know, I did science, I think it was 35 hours of contact time a week. Basically, you turned up and then there were other people and you could be taught and get on with it. <laughs> Carried so, you along. Exactly. So um, I thought I'd probably do better if I um, did science. Um, and then, yeah, so I did, you know, I was, as I said, I did very well at school I straight a student and my teachers a lot of them said well why don't you do medicine because that's the kind of thing to do if you're bright and likely to you know get into a competitive course and I remember which is strange now thinking but actually I'm, I'm a woman and at some point I want to have a family and I know partly because doctors in my family 
it's very difficult to do that if you want to, to raise kids. So actually, no, I mean, I was only 18, no thoughts at all of having kids at that point. But I definitely didn't want to do medicine for family reasons. Which is sort of um, hilarious given the job you've ended up doing, know, which is possibly less friendly to yes, parenting. Yeah, um, that's true. And teaching, um, again, it was more of a kind of, well, I just got married, looking for what to do next. I'd always loved teaching and explaining things and it just seemed the obvious thing. So, And I really enjoyed teaching and actually I only stopped for family reasons um, uh, because it just, you know, it's very... Um, what's the word? It's very inflexible teaching. Uh, you can't take days off to take kids to school or uh, things like that. So yes, but I really enjoyed teaching. And actually, it was foundational to what I'm doing now to be able to get up in front of a class, hold their attention, explain things, um, you know, demonstrate, walk alongside people. That's a very, very important skill for politics. And um, I can't uh, pass over your sort of formative years without slightly pressing on the faith question, because my experience, having talked to sort of more than 100 people now, a significant chunk have some kind of religious identity, is that very few people become kind of settled adult believers without some bumps in the road. Yeah. Have you had times where your Christianity has been less comfortable? Have you had a period of faith crisis? How's that journey been? No, absolutely. And, you know, I've described my, my childhood as um, a fantastic grounding in faith, but I didn't realise that at the time, and I certainly didn't appreciate it. And actually, a big part of me wanted to rebel or I, I suppose because I was capable and um, confident and bright my temptation has always been I can do this in my own strength um, and I suppose probably my thought when I was a child was why do I need God and especially because I had such uh, so blessed in my loving family you know I didn't want for anything um, I almost didn't realise what life would be like without those foundations. And so at university, I did, you know, I started off going to a church, but uh, it was Cambridge and it was so conservative and so different to my faith background. I think in the CU, it was me and 12 male physicists. And um, it just, you know, I, my faith was not strong enough at that point to press on. And I just, I did, I walked away from... I never stopped believing in God in my head. I mean, I had so many experiences of God as a as a child and a teenager, but I didn't understand why it should be my whole life. Um, and I think, and I really um, came back to God in my final year. Um, and I mean, God basically brought me to the point of surrender, that actually I can't do this without him. And if I want to be significant, if I want to be fulfilled, I want my life to mean something. There isn't a choice. Um, and, you know, that sounds such a strange thing, but it, it's very, it, you can't, unless you lose your life, um, you, there is no freedom unless you're fully surrendered um, to God and his principles. And that that's such a countercultural thing. And, you know, yes, I grew up in a Christian family, but I also grew up in the world. And the world says something very diff yeah. different. Freedom is a very different conception theologically versus... Exactly. And I suppose the last 20... 17, 18 years for me have been a gradual walk into deeper, deeper surrender to God. But actually, that sounds something restrictive, but it's actually the opposite. And it's it's a path to freedom. It isn't a given that an MP would feel comfortable to talk about their faith. And I've interviewed others who I know have faith commitments of different types. And I can see as we're talking the struggle of what to say and what not to say. Um, and we'll talk about this more generally with your politician's voice, but how have you thought about that along the way? 
Have you had different advice about how public to be about your faith? Has it caused issues? How's it sat with your career now as a member of parliament? Yeah, that's a very good question. No, I haven't had um, advice, uh, certainly not from the party or anything like that. As far as I know, very happy for for people to express their beliefs. I mean, yes, in some ways it does feel risky. But when I look at my journey of how I got here, I mean, I... You know, as I said, I was interested in politics as a teenager, but I always felt if if this is going to happen, God has to open the doors because I don't know anything about how political parties work. I don't have any political connections. And, you know, my journey from... I hadn't been a party member for... I'd only been a party member for, I think, 20 months when I became an MP. And I'd never stood before. I didn't know anyone in the party. Um, It was a journey of God opening doors. And I can't deny that. Um, I absolutely didn't get here under my own strength, cleverness, hard work, anything like that. And so I I feel um, that I have to acknowledge God in, in, um, in, in why I'm here. Not in a um, legalistic sense, I must do, but just it's just natural. And, um, you know, what am I here for if I can't speak about those things? Um, and, and actually, although... Although this country is no longer a Christian country, a lot of the values that we still have are built on Christian values. And people really, it, we, we lack depth in our public discourse. But when you actually start talking about these things, people, it, it chimes with people. And I don't think, I think a generation ago, there was perhaps a prejudice against Christians or people of any faith that this is what you believe. You know, I think I know what you believe and I've rejected it. I think people under 40 now don't know what Christians believe and actually um, are interested. Well, not everybody, but they don't. They don't have these prejudices. They're actually quite interested in what you believe and why, and why it's so different. So, um, it does feel risky in some senses. But being an MP feels very risky. So why not just go the whole hog? Yeah. Let's, I want to ask you a bit more about that because I, I confess, I I usually find I am not finding with you MPs amongst the most difficult people mm. to interview for this podcast. <laughs> Uh, the other example is academics, mm. because academics are so trained in argument, and at least until recently, the academic world really frowned on the, the, the subjective, really, and the kind of journey into academia is, is ever more stripping out the person yeah. for what I think is basically a kind of mythical chase after perfect objectivity. Um, but politicians are often difficult, uh, not difficult as in horrible, but just this is, you know, this is not a podcast that is a Radio 4 Today programme interview or, um, you know, a meaty policy conversation. It's designed so that listeners will hear a really wide range of voices across political and religious spectrums reflecting on their values and what has shaped them. And being, in lots of cases, quite personal, but it's really hard for MPs to be personal. As I was researching you, I was looking at your Twitter profile. The, the second one that comes up is quite an unfunny Twitter parody of you. Yeah. And becoming an MP is sort of making yourself public property in a way that I, I find myself defending MPs a lot because I know some and I like a lot of them. And I see the cost. How You haven't been an MP for that long and it's been a crazy time <laughs> to become one. Yeah. What's that emotional journey been like of being very much thrust into the public, being picked over, people assuming stuff about you, learning how to use your voice? How have you navigated it? 
Well, I think the first, it is a shock. Um, you know, I, because uh, I haven't been involved in politics long and I haven't experienced that. Um, and I was a, a parish councillor before I was an MP and really involved in the local community. So my experience of public life on a very minor level was very positive. And that actually, if you work hard and passionate about community, people respond really well to that. So it was a real shock that once you become an elected MP, you're suddenly a figure of public hate. That was very, very hard to deal with. And for my family as well. Um, and especially when so much is printed is just complete lies. But you can't, you know, you can't you defend yourself. And I think initial, my initial response is, was, was panic and defensiveness um, and feeling that I needed to respond to every single false allegation um, that was made of it. I think you feel, it feels very unjust. You know, I... Whilst you, you, I'm, you said something happened in your election campaign. Yes, yeah, so, um, bef- I mean, as before I was, a long time before I was involved in politics, I um, have been working in my husband's business, helping, he's got a software business. And one of the things we did, at our local church had a food bank uh, and they were struggling to get the right donations of things so they'd only get beans and actually they needed cornflakes and things like that. So um, we created an app that would enable the food banks, uh, the food bank to get better donations. So the supporter downloads the app. It's got a green list of things they've got plenty of, amber list, things that they're close to running out of red list they desperately need and you can give money directly as well. Um, and it was a, a great success. And so we, we offered it out to other food banks around the country, but we were a tiny business um, and we had a lot of interest and we couldn't afford to maintain it for all those food banks. So we charged a very small setup fee um, for, for, for the people to, to, to use it, which is just, you know, it's how charities operate. You pay for, you pay for services, but it was a very small fee. We, we lost overall thousands of pounds on the app because, uh, as I said, it, it was basically done pro bono. But um, during the election campaign, I think my opponents were looking for dirt on me um, because, you know, all the polls were suggesting the Conservatives were going to win, etc. Um, and they came up with this story, you know, it's just a classic Tory MP makes money out of starving food bank, you know, this, this kind of thing. And it um, fortunately didn't make the national media before the election, although it did afterwards. Um, and it was just this horrible feeling of knowing that we'd done something which we, for good reasons, you know, to trying to help our community, and it was being flipped into something that looked evil and selfish. And yeah, that was really, really hard. And also because it's in the middle of an election campaign, didn't want to focus on it, didn't want to defend it, didn't want to bring it to attention, you know, because there's, people think there's no smoke without fire, don't they? And, and so I think, but on the, although it was really, really hard, it was a good lesson learned because it, it comes back to actually God's my defender. I can't control what comes into the media. I can't control whether it's true or false. Um, I can't defend myself against all of it. Uh, and actually, I just need to stay focused on what is it that I need to do every day. So although it was really, really tough, it probably was a good learning experience because from going from feeling defensive and panicking, actually now me and my team are able to laugh about some of these things, you know, and, and almost we try and predict what will what will come up next. Um, but then the, the challenge in that is to not to be to isolate yourself from the uh, you know, the feelings of, of judgment and and uh, feeling like that, but to still remain empathetic towards constituents. And that's hard because you can't build too many barriers or you're not doing your job properly. So it's a difficult balance. But I think experience and time are the, the only things. And no doubt I'll get better at it as, you know, as the years go along. And how... So the, the public narratives, I've talked to various guests about this who are Conservative, the, and my friends... Uh, on both sides of the aisle, all have their own versions of um, 
the kind of nonsense stereotypes get thrown in them, whether it's a kind of woke liberal mm. snowflake or a kind of evil Tory, that, 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 you know, is very live in some areas at the moment. And you obviously don't present in exactly the way of most people's sort of, you know, um, stock photo image of a Tory MP. How do you navigate those kind of narratives about, what, you know, p- things that people assume about you and, and about Conservatives? Do you just have to tune it out? Do you see part of your job as subverting some of them? How are you thinking about that part of your voice? Um, y- yes, that's a very good question. I, I mean, one thing I would say is I am... I have chosen to be a conservative. I am not a tribal, you know, I'm not tribal conservative or tribal labor or anything like that. I have chosen as an adult to go this route. So in some ways, I've had to think about why am I conservative? Why do I believe this thing? Can I justify it? And I think that gives me an advantage because I didn't grow up surrounded by the Conservative Party going out leafleting every week and as just as an assumed identity. So I've had to have those uh, you know, those thoughts. Like an in adult my, convert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, I am an adult. So, so I have, I am very secure in my approach. Now, I'm not saying I'll never change my mind on anything. Of course I will. But I'm secure in my reasons for being conservative. Um, and I think it's probably an advantage not looking like a standard Tory MP, because then at least people do give you the benefit of the doubt. I think the problem is that people don't have time for a complex argument. And one of the things I said in my maiden speech was that all of us, or the vast majority of us in public life, have come in to this place, to to, to Parliament, to make the world a better place. And our differences are in approach and strategy, but not that fundamental motivation, which is we want to make life better for people. And I think the problem with our debate at the moment is that we see people who essentially just have different strategies uh, as being other. And, and having evil motivations when actually nothing is, is, is further from the truth. And, you know, personally sitting on one side of the argument, I think other people are very misguided, but I have to be very, very careful to think they themselves probably still want the best, just like, like I do. And I think that's where, that's where we've gone wrong. So, yeah, I, I know I'm stereotyped, and I suppose what I always look for is an opportunity to explain. So if I'm doing media, um, yes, I make sure I've got the party lines and the stats, but I try and look for a kind of sideways argument to explain it in a different way. And that's the teacher in me, you know, use an analogy, relate it to people's personal lives, personal finances. Um, because I think that that's what cuts through in the way that just shouting stats at each other just, just doesn't, doesn't make sense to most people. Yeah. And I think it might help illuminate a bit of your political philosophy if you tell us a bit more about the new social covenant unit and what is the thinking behind that. And it's careful that it's not a think tank. Mm-hmm. Tell me what, what is it and what's it trying to do? Okay, so um, sorry, it's something that I've started with with Danny Kruger, who's the MP for Devizes, also a new MP in, in 2019. Um, and I suppose we think that there um, is an opportunity to um, bring politics back to more of the common good. So I suppose a, a way of phrasing might be to, to talk about politics of virtue. So actually, instead of just transforming our public services and how much money do we spend on this and that, how do we create an environment where people can grow? Um, so where the virtues, which I suppose, you know, values of all faiths, of, of, of um, you know, being community-minded and, and all those kind of things can flourish in our society. Because actually, we focus so much on outputs 
and the external. Whereas actually, we all know that it's it's internal transformation and, and, and stronger families and stronger communities that really transform people's lives. So I suppose what, what we're, we're trying to do is do some research, work with as many partners as we can to try and look at how do we, how do we come back to this idea of the common good and, and of virtue in politics and strengthen families, communities uh, and nation. Because actually all those things are very linked. And I, you know, it, it seems strange to me that some people can be so passionate about the nation and yet care so little about the family because actually our identity isn't just on one level. You know, we're not just individuals and we don't really own ourselves as individuals. We're a product of, of our relationships and our role in society. And so trying to kind of draw all those strands together and bring our conservative colleagues with us. But uh, yeah, it's, we just started out, but it's it's provided some really good opportunities. What uh, What do you think the virtues are? Well, I suppose from a faith perspective, I'd talk about the fruits of the spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, all those kindness, self-control um, that actually, you know, my experience, those are the things that lead to happiness and fulfillment and not external circumstances. Um, but I don't think that has to be an exclusive thing for faith because we talk a lot about um, people being robust, teaching children to be resilient in fact, we don't talk enough about it. Uh, but actually, those internal strengths mm. um, and and character traits are really what help us through the tough times, aren't they? Um, and we don't acknowledge that enough in our public life. Links back to character and your parents. It's really interesting as you're speaking, because I deliberately try and put myself in conversations in lots of different places and just sort of listen and and cross a lot of tribes. And there are there is a parallel conversation happening on the left and often on the very kind of very progressive left in activist spaces where um, lots of environmentalists or racial justice campaigners or gender and sexuality campaigners are increasingly disillusioned with the classic model of activism. It burns through people. It often puts you into kind of us and them narratives. And there is this whole conversation happening on the left about inner transformation. And it's, it's usually spoken of much more in kind of spiritual terms and um, sort of psychological terms and usually sort of Eastern spirituality more comfortably, although not always, than Christianity. But it just strikes me that there is a conversation about inner transformation happening on the left and a conversation about character and virtue happening on the right, which might actually be almost the same thing, but are not really connected because of that assumption that the other tribe... Is don't wrong. care about the same things yes. or are the bad guys or are actually working for different ends. That's, yes, that's very, very interesting. Um, they are two sides of the same coin. Uh, and I think what's missing in the centre ground, if you like, although it's a strange centre now, is any idea of forgiveness because internal transformation, whether you call that character, virtue, whatever you want to call it, relies on change and change depends on the fact that you got things wrong before and that you learn from it, which is, you know, the whole idea of learning. It's the Christian idea of forgiveness, repentance, those kind of things. And you, what we see at the moment is this good desire to want to be good and not discriminate against people and to, um, you know, treat everybody equally and to help people who are disadvantaged. That's good but without an ability to forgive and accept people change. And actually, there's no hope, no hope at all without forgiveness. That's where we've gone wrong. Not the idea of aiming high, not the idea of wanting 
um, you know, a squeaky clean public knife. They're all they're all good things. But without forgiveness, there is no hope. And maybe that's an area where left and right can can unite. But there's definitely some way to go. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, and we, you've talked about family with the new social covenant unit. And I was wrestling on my way into work last night. I want to ask you about motherhood and family and also I don't because you're a woman and it's really annoying that this doesn't come up with fathers and am I just perpetuating that by asking you about it and I was trying to think if I'd asked other people about it who are fathers but you've written about it and you're uh, worth you know you're you're trying to set something up which does center the idea of family so I think I do and also I'm interested because I'm a mother and trying to lead and um but what what is your kind of, what's the story you're trying to tell about family in general through this covenant? And what are the, because there's loads of landmines around this, right? It's difficult to talk yeah. about family in public. Yeah. And what have your, in fact, answer that one first. I'm going to stop double barreling the question. What's the story you're trying to tell about family and how, how can we do it better? Um, motherhood and parenting is a privilege. It's also a very natural, important part of our identity. Um, and... I mean, I studied genetics at university and the whole point of DNA to survive and reproduce um, relies on good parenting. That's why it's our instinct to want to parent well. And I don't think wanting to be a good mother uh, in any way conflicts with the idea of of women being equal. That doesn't mean we're the same. We're not. Uh, That's very clear in my mind that men and women are not the same. Um, But I see motherhood as a privilege and I'm so grateful that I have got to be one because, yes, it's hard. And but every every opportunity also has a cost. I mean, yeah, I I didn't have a career for however many years. But so what? I got to raise my beautiful children. And, um, you know, what I have learned in my coming back to character, you know, what I have learned from having to put other people first and sacrifice my own time and warm cups of tea. You know, those things that don't exist when you have small children are things that I will, you know, have forever. Um, And it it seems strange to me that people see motherhood as um, something uh, that's second rate because, now I'm not saying it isn't hard, it is. And some mothers, you know, I've been very fortunate in my experience and some mothers absolutely don't have that. But it should be something that society celebrates because good parents are doing a job that will have an impact for uh, the rest of their children's lives. And actually, it's probably the most significant thing that most of us do. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is, we are trying to say to, you know, the modern view of feminism is trying to say to women, you should have what every man in the 1950s wanted to have. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, why don't we celebrate motherhood for what it is, which is absolutely foundational to the future of our society? So therefore, why don't we recognise it in the tax system? Why don't we recognise it in the education system? Um, it is not a second rate job. It is a very important job and it should have the status of any other uh, job in society that's, that's so crucial. What do you think are the buttons that are being pressed when people react badly to that? People saying things like that. Well, that's a very good question. And I think it is buttons. I'm not sure there's, I'm not sure how much thought there is behind it. Because on the one hand, we're very, you know, we see ourselves in a very scientific time. Um, And actually, if you look at biology and evolution and all those things, all points to the fact that we do have these very, very strong drivers to reproduce and to be good parents. I mean, that is the basic foundation of the future of our species. You don't have, that is not a religious thing, that's not a spiritual thing, that's just basic science. And so to acknowledge that 
on one level, but at the same time to be doing everything we can to deny how important motherhood is to the female identity just seems bizarre to me. Um, and I think that's where we've just got into siloed kind of groupthink. Um, you, you know, and we, but maybe we need some, some some women to kind of stand up and say, well, actually, this is a part of my identity and I don't regret that. Mm. Um, but it is a difficult one. But And unfortunately, I don't think at the moment, there's many men who are able to speak into it. Um, so it's that definitely... Might help. Yes. Yeah, so it's definitely us mums that have got to, to... You know, and I think we've spoken so much about how important choice is for women. And it is. But lots of women want to choose to prioritise their, their family. And I know women from all walks of life who wouldn't have gone back to work as many hours when their children were young if they could have afforded not to or they felt they had a choice so women need to have a choice to be able to care for their own children and families just as they need to have a choice if they want to work and at the moment the choice is all in one direction yeah it's interesting I haven't sort of spoken or written about it much in public precisely for this feeling of well, one, I think there's there's still a lot of layers about women in leadership mm-hmm. and the the archetype of leadership is not someone encumbered by dependence mm-hmm. all the time, which I try and kind of subvert but struggle with. But I also feel like like most of these very neuralgic issues, whether it's sexuality or gender or all the many, many things that are painful and difficult, so much is a so much so many subjects feel like pressing on a bruise for people mm-hmm. who might not have had choices or there was a path that was closed to them for a variety of reasons or they have made a particular choice and even the presence of someone else's choice feels like a judgment and that's the bit I'm I'm intrigued by how we dial down that reaction and it's almost like a perfectionist binary way of seeing the world that there's a right and a wrong answer to things and that if you have made another choice than me you must think my choice is wrong or lesser rather than seeing, for, for me, the kind of cr- creation logic of diversity and beauty. And, yes. you know, um, anyway, that's me sort of riffing. But it feels to me like it's not necessarily rational, not in a bad way. It's a very human emotional hurt mm. or fear yes. underneath anger. Yes. Yeah, I think the way, yeah, you're totally right. I think the way I see it is we have got into this idea that to be compassionate is to not offend people and to not put them in a position where they might have feelings that are negative. Now, I I don't agree with that. And I think if, you know, I absolutely don't want to offend people. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want... You know, as I said, I've been so blessed to be able to have children, to have that choice. And I know, I, you know, I can't imagine the pain that other people have gone through and so many people have gone through. And I, you know, I wouldn't want for a minute not to acknowledge that. But if we're going to speak some deep truths, we need to be free to speak those deep truths, even if they cause discomfort to people. And I think Jesus was pretty offensive. And he said some stuff that would have made people very uncomfortable and certainly the Pharisees very uncomfortable. Uh, And yet he was good. Um, And I think actually this idea that compassion means you never cause, you know, emotional um, hurt is probably not true. Uh, And we need to get, and actually it's restricting our debate. Um, Because 
just because I make a choice doesn't actually mean I'm, I'm making a judgment on somebody else at all. It absolutely doesn't. But that's our perception and we need to get away from it because otherwise we can't talk about these things that are so important uh, to our society. So, yeah, I mean, you know, all, as a politician, you have to be fairly guarded about what you say. Um, you know, it can be tweeted out and captioned all, 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 all different ways and used against you. But if we as politicians can't try and break a little bit of ground, then what hope is there? And so I think that it's always this balance between, yeah, I don't want to offend people. I don't want to say things that are going to trigger people. But on the other hand, I am here to speak truth and I'm here to represent people and I'm here to say say it how it is and say the world as I see it, even if other people disagree. And so there's got, you know, we've got to, to take that risk sometimes. Otherwise, you know, we're just going to get more and more afraid of, of what we say and do. Yeah. I'm going to close on a final question, which... Um, I want to kind of caveat and acknowledge that the public perception of politicians is not as people who are particularly talented at bridge building Mm. because of, frankly, the architecture of the building in which you sit. Mm. The whole system is set up a slightly zero-sum, win-lose game. And that is a, you know, that forms character. It it centres a particular set of virtues over another set of virtues. Um, but what I'm hearing from you is that you do care about engaging across differences where it's where it's possible and where it's sensible. And um, so what have you learned? And presumably in your work as a parish councillor, you had to build coalitions and collaboration. And I'm sure you still do now, even within your party. So what helps us see each other better, understand each other better, work together better for the mm. common good? Well, I think, firstly, I would say that it's a lot less combative than people think. And okay, you have this spectacle once a week of PMQs, which is very theatrical and works people up. But actually, most debates, most committees are not like that. And there's a lot more common ground, a lot more understanding, a lot more cross-party working. And then regionally as well, all my, all the other MPs in Sheffield and Barnsley are Labour. But we work very well on local issues and I've got great respect for them. And um, there's a very good understanding of, of what needs to be done in South Yorkshire and, and things like that. So it's a lot more collaborative than people think. But I think it all comes back to relationships. And actually, if you build a relationship with somebody, if you try to understand who they are, and where they're coming from, if you spend time with them, it's a lot easier then to empathise with, not necessarily that you would then agree with them, but empathise with where they're coming from and then come back to this idea that, they may have a different strategy and a different approach to you, but their motives are the same, which is to make the world a better place. And, you know, how can you stay angry with somebody who, um, you know, who wants to make the world a better place? And this is the problem with Twitter and social media and that's been exacerbated by lockdown and remote working and interactions is we are meant to be in community with each other and you do not get a full relationship with someone unless you are physically present with them. And a lack of physical presence leads to a lack of understanding and that leads to to division and and what we see on social media today, which, quite frankly, I can't stand Twitter and I'd ban it if I could. No, I wouldn't ban it, but I certainly don't engage with it. (laughs) Marion Cates, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey.
The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.